Hi, my name is Cecilia Puna, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived. And it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. Today I'm talking to Adriana Jimenez. And Adriana is from Venezuela, but she's currently a postdoctoral research assistant at Newcastle University in the northeast of England. And she's a specialist in coral reefs, so she's a marine biologist. And she's also studied at James Cook University in Queensland in Australia, where she worked on the Great Barrier Reef. I'm talking to her about her expertise in coral reefs and also of her experience of living in Venezuela in what have been extraordinarily difficult times. And the the third thing I wanted to mention about Adriana is that she, along with five other women, have recently published a book called The Secret Life of Viruses. So um, Blanca Bernal, who's also been on the podcast, was uh, another of the authors of that book. So welcome, Adriana. Yeah, thank you, Cecilia, very much. It's a great pleasure to be part of your podcast. So, Adriana, you are a specialist in coral reefs. Can you tell us a bit about um, what you're working on and what your speciality is? Yeah, um, so at the moment I'm working in a project where we're looking at how we could um, use different techniques to prepare reefs for future climate change scenarios. Um, So currently, like um, this year, the uh, restoration decadate uh, started, uh, which is an initiative of the United Nations. And a lot of uh, projects are focusing on how we can potentially restore uh, different ecosystems that have been degraded, uh, especially due to climate change. So the project that I'm working at the moment is um, focused on um, trying to see if we could, uh, using different techniques, um, prepare reef to future climate change scenarios. Um, and one of the techniques that we are using for this is by um, reproducing uh, coral colonies that have certain characteristics that make them uh, more resistant to um, heat waves or high temperatures, which is like the main factor that climate change is going to be affecting reefs in tropical areas. So see if we could um, use um, these colonies, coral colonies that we know that have higher resistance to high temperatures to produce new individuals through sexual reproduction and use them as the material to restore uh, degraded areas or reefs that we know that are going to be impacted by um, increases of temperature due to climate change. So how do how do coral reefs reproduce? So um, uh, corals are animals and they are colonial organisms that are formed by millions of tiny anemones, like sort of the the similar shape of an anemone that are interconnected through their tissue. And all together, they form the colony and they segregate, produce a ton of calcium. Um, And they, if you imagine the anemone, um, 
on on the top of the head of the anemones where you will have the tentacles and inside uh, the body of the anemone they produce um, gametes so they produce um, eggs and sperm and through the mouth of the anemone they release those gametes into the water column uh, this is something that uh, happens usually once or twice per year in an event where all the spe- all the colonies from the same species they release these gametes into the water uh, during the night. And once that the gametes have been released, um, eggs will get fertilized by the sperm, uh, giving origin to an embryo that will develop in in the water column and will give um, origin then to a larvae. And this larvae will be able to travel with the currents and uh, swim towards the substrate of the reef and, and attach to an, a, a substrate of, of, of the reef. And that's how it will produce the first uh, anemone, or we call them polyps. The first polyp will, will be originated uh, from this and will go through a process of clonation producing many several um, new polyps and that will give origin to a coral colony and this is how they reproduce sexually. Mm -hmm. And what's the state of uh, coral reefs around the world at the moment? Well currently um, reefs have been really highly impacted by um, human activities and climate change, um, so um, nutrient pollution, overfishing, bycatch, um, and also in, like the main uh, factor that it's affecting them at the moment is the increase of the seawater temperature which is causing uh, massive bleaching events. So corals have, um, they live in symbiosis with with an algae. Um, Like um, all these polyps that I described to you before, inside their tissue, uh, they have this uh, association with a microscopy algae called Sosanthella. And this Sosanthella produces um, uh, food uh, through photosynthesis. And these nutrients that the Sosanthella produces, a part of them are used by the coral animal, the coral host. And in exchange, um, the, so the Sosanthella has a place to live. So it's, it's a win-win situation. But under high temperatures, this relationship uh, is broken and they divorce. They, they don't, they don't like each other anymore. And, if we don't we still don't know exactly what is the mechanism behind it if it is that the animal exposes the sosanthella or the sosanthella de- like decides to leave the tissue of the coral but um the the ending point is that the the relationship is broken and the coral animal so the host it can only live an average of 4 weeks without the sosanthella and um, these sosanthella they are also like free living in the water column. They're part of the phytoplankton as well. 
so the coral could uh, reabsorb them from from the water but if this doesn't happen then the the, the whole colony dies and during like heat waves or when there has been like a long periods of high temperatures in the reef um they have caused that um, large amounts of coral colonies lose their zooxanthella cannot reabsorb them from the water and and dying producing massive uh, deaths um, so during since 98 around the world there has been four massive bleaching events where we have lost around it's an estimate that has been uh, calculated it's not uh, really like it's not super precise but it's around 30 percentage of the corals have been lost uh, wow. in, in the last uh, some, since 1998 for instance for the great barrier reef during the last five years we have lost half of the corals of the oh great barrier reef so the status of the reef is really delicate around the world and um, predictions uh, say that if if we don't manage to control our carbon emissions um, by 2050, we're gonna lose between 70 to 90 percentage of the corals that are still alive today. That is incredible. Yes. <sighs> and um, so, what what is the function of coral reefs in the ecosystem? If if we did lose all the coral reefs, what would what would the effect be on on the ecosystem, marine ecosystem? Yes, and and I think it's a a really good question because uh, I think in general we don't realize how important reefs are uh, for humans, but coral reefs they provide a lot of services to us, and I think one of the most important of them is coastal protection. So. Um, they uh, reduce the wave action uh, and the erosion that could happen in the coast. Um, and they, they, they reduce this um, um, wave action and erosion considerably. Um, and the, the losing that service um, will um, mean that we are going to be like lots of people are going to be uh, exposed to the impacts of um, like floodings um, or uh, oh, massive storms, massive storms yeah. from the sea. Yeah, exactly. All yeah. that. Um, yeah. So I think that's the first service that it's like really important and it's going to be really hard to recover once the reef is gone. Um, on the other hand, around 500 million people worldwide uh, depend on coral reefs. And the 15 percentage of the domestic product uh, of more than 20 countries depends directly on coral reef. Um, Is that from fishing or from...? Yes, yeah, so that's food security and coastal protection. Um, so a quarter of the marine species uh, are represented in coral reef ecosystems. Uh, that's 28 out of 
35 animal phyla that exist in the marine uh, environment. And this is why they are so incredibly beautiful because they sustain such a diverse community of organisms. And this extremely diverse community of organisms not only makes them like an ideal place for people like me, marine ecologists, to study because they are so like incredibly beautiful, uh, but in addition, like uh, the number of compounds that we have used so far to produce medicines at the moment is around 20,000 uh, compounds, natural compounds have been used from marine uh, animals or organisms that are associated with reefs. And they, they are used to treat like heart diseases, cancer, asthma, arthritis, like the, the, the number of services that we get from reefs is, is just immense. Like, and, and, even though if we don't live close to them, we're still receiving a lot of the services that they mm. provide. Mm. And so what are you working on to uh, preserve coral reefs? Mm. Um, so the work that I'm doing is more focused on uh, research and trying to understand the mechanisms behind um, that can give corals better chances to survive uh, increases of temperature. Um, so I've described to you that uh, it's an animal together in symbiosis with this microscopy algae, but it's not only that, there's a third component uh, in the coral, with, which is the microbiome. So on the surface of the animal, uh, they produce a lot of mucus, and inside this mucus, there's a whole community of microbiomes and uh, fungi and bacteria. And they're all working together in this ecosystem that is the uh, coral, um, and they're in an equilibrium. And each one of, the, of, of these organisms that form the coral which in, in a marine ecology, we, we call them the coral holobiont, which is the whole, um, um, all, all the group of these organisms. Each one of those uh, have a specific um, function inside uh, the coral. So in order to understand what can make an, a coral uh, more resistant to heat tolerance, we need to understand better how all these organisms are in working together and which are the ones driving uh, their response uh, in when they're exposed to high temperatures. Mm -hmm. So when, when bleaching events happens, um, so usually like massive bleaching events that are uh, followed by massive deaths of corals, no? Mm -hmm. But it has been observed that some colonies, like even like um, colonies, um, you can have the same species close together, like two individuals of the same species, and one of them dies and the other one survives and can recover from the bleaching event. So we are really interested in knowing what are the drivers that determine that 
these specific individuals are can resist the high tolerance and then use that information to see how we could um, prepare the bees for future um, uh, climate change scenarios and how this information could be used for restoration efforts. So we are doing a lot of experiments um, like um, crossing together two individuals or um, sexually reproducing two individuals that we know are tolerant to high temperatures, producing their offspring. And we're testing different methods on how to outplant them to the reefs because we can do this like at this stage, um, coral reef ecologists, we, we have like a really well known knowledge on how to reproduce them in the lab and produce large amounts of larvae. But the problem at the moment is how are we gonna um, attach those larvae? Well, how are we gonna, after they attach to a substrate, how we're gonna attach those substrates to the reef? And how can this be done in a cost-effective manner that can actually have an effect on the whole population of the reef to see if this is something feasible to do or not? It could be that it's not feasible. So we are not directly working on saving the reef. Like we don't, um, we don't do a restoration uh, project. We are doing the science behind to understand how that restoration project could be done. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're providing the information to people who might at a later stage um, go out and actually try and implant these new, um, more heat-resistant corals onto the exactly. reefs. Mm -hmm. Exactly, because we at the moment, there, like, there's a lot of research going in trying to understand the mechanisms behind, but... Uh, like as I, I I told you before, like it, the prediction says that by 2050 we're gonna be losing around uh, 70 to 90 percent. That if we don't decrease our carbon emissions, um, so there's a lot of research going on on supposing that we are gonna reduce those carbon emissions, uh, but still a lot of reef areas are gonna be threatened. We still would need to have some like active actions um, to help them to prepare them to these future scenarios. Um, so a lot of research is going on in the lab, but not that much is going on on how we translate this into the practice. And that is what the research project that I'm working at the moment, which is sort of unique. Um, we are testing how to do this in the reef and how to upscale it to larger um, spatial scales that can have an ecological impact in mm. the community. So it's a race, it sounds to me like it's a race against time. Yes, it's a race against time. And the thing is that we need to, we need to, we need to focus on like research efforts on both directions, on understanding the biology, but also understanding how we translate what we know and find out from the lab into the practice and feed that information to managers. Mm -hmm. So we are like sort of in between both worlds at the moment, in between what we find out in the reef and how we connect that to managers. And are you feeling optimistic 
about the research? Yes, I think I think if we're not optimistic, there's not much <laughs> left um, to do. Um, so um, I think one of them, and 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 I think this has been like really clear during the pandemic at the moment. Um, the fact that we were able to get a vaccine in less than a year uh, because the urgency of developing it. Um, has been like a race against time and that I think like most of the scientists, we we didn't believe this was something that was feasible in such a short time frame. Uh, but I guess like um, the example of how urgent something is uh, gives you an idea of that things are feasible. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, climate change and reefs, I think like since it is the decade of uh, ecological restoration. And it's also the decade of um, marine ecosystems. So the next 10 years are gonna be focused on improving diversity of marine ecosystem and restoring marine ecosystems. So I think it, it puts, it drives out an agenda. And I think at the moment we are really clear on that we need to take action. And the technology is available. Mm -hmm. It's just that we need, and research is going like at a really high speed. Like it's incredible the amount of papers that are published <laughs> on a weekly basis on this topic, like only on heat tolerance of corals. Like I, I don't have time to read them. My, my to-do list of papers just keeps increasing, increasing, increasing. <laughs> I can never catch up. Um, and I think like it's it's a uh, response to, to the urgency that we see. So I, I'm really optimistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's just change, change topics completely now. Um, I'd like to hear more about your life uh, growing up in Venezuela. So where were you, where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, I was born in, in Caracas, and that's where I grew up. Um, I live always uh, in, in the same city until um, I was, I think, 31 years old. Um, so, yeah, always in the same place. And how did things change over that time? Because I think uh, Venezuela went through the most incredible political upheaval through that time. So how was how was your experience um, living and growing up in, in Caracas? Yes, I think like bef like because of the oil boom uh, that Venezuela had in the 70s, um, like uh, Caracas was one of the most, uh, I think it was the most modern city uh, by the time for Latin America. Um, there was uh, a lot of money and investment in the country in many different aspects, um, like construction, um, like um, education as well. Like, um, so it, it was like an era of, of a lot of resources and, and, and prosperity. Yes, exactly. And, and Venezuela was like really, really uh, leading the agenda uh, for Latin America um, and also like being, being the, 
biggest, having the biggest reserve of oil in the world, um, it also gives like the the government a lot of power. No, mm. so when I was born in eighty one, uh, it was just at the moment when this whole bonanza was starting to decay because it was not uh, properly um, um, used or uh, it was not properly managed. Um, But I think like Caracas, the capital city of the country, like it was extremely well developed, lots of arts, um, really high... um, culture, diversity uh, offer. Um, also in terms of education, like we had, like in terms of research, for instance, we had um, visitors, researchers just coming to, to Venezuela to do research. Uh, so many also natural resources that, that the country has. So I think like growing in that environment was like a real privilege. Um, it was also like an environment where there were so many resources around you. Also, the weather is extremely nice. Like the weather in Caracas ranges, temperature ranges between 21 to 27 throughout the year. Uh, so it's always Fantastic. nice. Yes, it's it's a beautiful city. Uh, you have like really close, beautiful Caribbean beaches. So growing in that environment, even though it was starting to decay, it was still like really, really, really nice and a and a huge privilege, I think. Yeah. And when things started to decay, how did that impact you directly? So in '89, we had the uh, we had a coup. Um, yeah. Um, and I remember like there were um bombs thrown. Um there were I think it was three or four bombs that were thrown from an airplane. And and I rem like it, it was hurt in the whole city, like all the windows shake and I remember just my mom crying. Uh, and I think that's that that is a decisive moment. Like seeing my mom crying and and the windows shaking is like the first uh, sign of something not not going well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was that was in eighty nine. I was eight years old. Uh, um, and were you? Do you remember being scared? Um. Yeah, like that day, yes. Uh, afterwards, not that much. Um, then we had a second one, uh, but there were no bombs in that one. Um, and then I think like from since I was like around 12, 13 years old, everything started to go worse. And in 99, where Chavez took power, it was exactly uh, when it was. So he won in January. Um, and I graduated from school in July and he took, no, he, he, he won, I think elections are in December and then he takes, he takes over in, in January. Uh, so yeah, I graduated in July. He took over in like six months after I graduated from school. Um, 
and when he took over the the power um it was um there was a massive flooding uh, in Venezuela and a lot of people died um so it happened all together so it was like really really defined transition between something that was not that good but sort of good to like suddenly we had i think it is hmm, i I'm, i don't remember the numbers now um, but it's lots of deaths in a, a, a satellite city like next to caracas and i remember like going to help on refugee camps to to the people that have lost their their homes Mm-hmm. um the university like lectures were canceled like for two months or something like this so i didn't start on time so everything started to be like there there was a, a really clear distinction that things were going wrong like not only politically it was also this flooding and it was really bad managed um So yeah. And so you started you started university. Mm-hmm. Um, and and were you able to finish your studies? Yeah, I I finished in 2005. Um so it was uh, six years of uh like at the beginning really really nice, uh, but in for instance in 2002 um we was when Chavez started the uh, exchange control, which means that we were not allowed to have any um, foreign currency mm-hmm. um, as citizens, but that it also meant that the universities didn't have access to foreign currency, which means in science, like all the reagents or all the journal subscriptions everything is in dollars. Uh, so the university didn't have access to buying new reagents or getting access to journal uh, uh, papers, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kept going on. Like we still have the exchange controls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so things are just went wrong and worst from there on from 2002 like yeah and when did you decide to leave and why mm, i i so since since i read, uh, finished um, the university i i tried to leave in 2005 like tried to get a scholarship to go out and study abroad but i didn't get any um I got a, a scholarship. Uh, so the, the government at that moment uh, opened only for two years. I think it, we we didn't have scholarships. Um, so when Venezuela had all this uh, excess of resources due to the oil bonanza, uh, there were lots of uh, scholarship programs for studying overseas. But... Uh, it had disappeared that program and then in 2007 um the government started it again um uh, for two years 
and I applied to that uh, and didn't get a scholarship to study abroad, but I got a scholarship to study uh, in Venezuela. So I did a master's in another university. So I did my undergrad in the Universidad Central de Venezuela, which is the biggest uh, university in, in the country. Um, and then I did the master in as another university also in Caracas um, with this scholarship. Uh, it, it was good to have access to that scholarship. The, the bad side was, for instance, that it was supposed to come together with the funding for my project, but that funding was never granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so according to the government, they gave me the funding, but it never arrived to the university. Mm-hmm. So those things were like really commonly happening. So the government will say that they have granted, I don't know how many millions of uh, scholarship that in, re- in reality, they only gave like half of them. And those half of them, like they didn't provide the whole funding. Um, so I still, like I did the master's and I finished it. Uh, um, and then I kept trying to apply to uh, scholarship because I, I wanted, I really wanted to work with uh, sexual reproduction of course. Uh, it has been always something that I find really interesting. And I wanted to study it in Australia um, with the pers- with the group that discovered it um, in the 80s. Um, and with whom my master supervisor, she did the, her PhD with that group. Um, so I really wanted to have that experience too. And I kept applying to their uh, program and uh, James Cook University, they have some scholarships, uh, but I never got any. And, and they were all the time saying like, the, the requirements were that I had I needed to have a first author paper published, mm-hmm. and by the time I didn't have any, um, like it was like at that time we already had five years without access to journals. Uh, so in for us, in order to get access to a paper, like any during that time, like. Uh, like the internet resources that we use nowadays were not that available. Mm-hmm. So I would have to write directly to each author of a paper and request them a copy of the PDF. And that was something like really a slow process. Like nowadays you can just download like thousands of papers in just one click. Mm-hmm. So that is something that really slows, slow down the whole process and not being a first author ever uh, in a peer-reviewed journal, like the first paper is always something really extremely challenging to to have. Um, so um, I it came to a point that I decided I was gonna quit uh, science. Uh, mm-hmm. I after finishing my master, I I got a contract like for one year in the lab where I did my my masters. But after that, um, the funding of that project ended. And my partner, he also finished like the project where he was working um, also in a research institute, institute also had finished. 
So we both went unemployed and then we decided to maybe change career. He's also a biologist. So we decided to apply to a, for a scholarship in Spain uh, and he got it uh, to do a master's in documentary filming. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to study photography. And our idea was like, since we get so much access to um, natural areas on, and natural environments, where, and we know so many people, all our friends are researchers that are studying the impacts of human activities and climate change on these ecosystems. That maybe, and we both like photography and documentary and telling stories. Um, that could be an alternative pathway. Um, so we went to Spain and he did the master's and I studied photography for one year. And I think it was like two weeks before we were supposed to uh, be traveling to Spain. I got an answer from a scholarship that I had applied to do the PhD in Australia mm-hmm. saying that it was granted. So um I got the scholarship to do the PhD. I started like, I just postponed it for a year. And after finishing studying photography, I went uh, to Australia to do the PhD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's like, we, we first left in 2010, uh, one year, the 2011, one year to Spain. And then from Spain, we moved to Australia. Mm-hmm. And how was the experience in Australia? Oh, it was great. It was awesome. Uh, beautiful because going from from a place like um, being in Venezuela, like those years where things are were getting really, really hard and um, difficult, uh, arriving in a place where you have like so many resources available for research is just like a dream for mm-hmm. somebody that is interested in that. And I did uh, the PhD was in James Cook University, but together with the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And the Australian Institute of Marine Science, they were building a new facility that is called the Sea Simulator, where they can control as many variables as you want, or as you can imagine, in uh, aquariums to simulate the conditions of the sea and to simulate like climate change scenarios. And it was just being built uh, and it finished, I think when I was in my second year of the PhD. So I saw the whole process where they built the facility and they started testing everything. And I was part of testing, uh, helping to test the systems. And I thought it was just like this new world for marine ecologists, mm-hmm. like, Everything was there just to play and around and propose experiments. And it was just fantastic. It was also like a like great cultural shock because um, Caracas is a city of when, when I was living in Caracas, um, it's usually, I think, between 3 million to 5 million people, just the inner city. Uh, with the people that are living in the surrounding, it, it goes up to like 7 million people. So it's a really crowded city, a lot of people. But as I said, there's also a lot of cultural offer, like museums, 
art everywhere in the street. I was really like during my whole childhood and uh, as teenager, I was really exposed to the cultural scenery of uh, Caracas and, and I really love it. And Townsville, the city where I moved in Australia, is a city of 150,000 people. And it was at the beginning a really, really difficult transition to do. Um, like you go out to the street and you don't see anybody, no matter the time. <laughs> it could be eight in the morning, it could be three in the morning. It's always the same. And the cultural offer is not that big. Um, it's a really spread city. So um, you don't you don't have people around you uh, that much. So that was a huge change in in lifestyle. Uh, and I felt really, really strange at one point. Like I, I couldn't find myself there and I just wanted to go back to Venezuela. And it was like a really strange feeling because I've been trying to get to Australia since 2005 and I finally got there in 2012. And then suddenly I just don't want to be there. <laughs> mm, mm. So, so all those dreams were, yeah. were, you were confronted by the reality of, of your dreams. Yes, yes, mm. exactly. So I think it mm. was just also really hard. Like I was, I, I went first alone and then my partner joined me like half a year later. But also when I arrived, like I didn't have a defined project on what I was going to be working on. And all the projects that I proposed to my supervisors, uh, they didn't seem to be feasible. So I got really frustrated. I didn't know anybody. It was also like the Australian accent. Like nobody could understand my English. So I was like, oh my God, I'm talking to you in English. Why can't you not understand me? So I think those transitions are always like really, really hard. But after I found, I found my place there and, and, and actually like, I think like for me, even though I really, really dream about Caracas being my home place, um, since Caracas has changed so much and it like what I, the idea of home that I have uh, in Caracas doesn't exist anymore. Mm. so I think like my home is in Townsville in Australia. Like I really fell in love with the city. Um, it's such a beautiful place. Like you have so much nature around you and it's really least easy and easy life style. Uh, no stress. Uh, people are really easy going. The weather is nice. Um, and you have like all these facilities also for research. So I think it was a really nice time mm-hmm. in my life. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I'm really looking forward to have the opportunity to go back. Mm-hmm. You've had a I mean, you've had an amazing life. Um, and you've been all over the world. And I mean, now you're in, in Newcastle in England. Um, yeah. And so if you're talking about people who don't understand your English, I mean, I know what, <laughs> what people sound like in Newcastle. <laughs> Exactly. Then we arrived here and we couldn't understand a single word. And it was like, <laughs> again. <laughs> <laughs> and the last question I have for you, Adriana, is um, 
what has been the impact on your career of being a woman, either negative or positive? So that that's a question that is usually common uh, nowadays for women working in academia, and and, that, and it's a question that I I didn't I really don't like to answer in terms of my experience because my experience represents only one data point of the trend and it, it's not representative of what is happening in academia for women. So, and I think important things happening in academia for women at the moment, and I would like to talk about that. Um, so for us, for women in academia, there's, it's, it's a really, really hard uh, road to be able to reach for uh, leadership positions. So at the moment, uh, women have a lot of access uh, to education and we have seen that uh, men are equally represented in uh, courses in science uh, at a undergraduate level and also uh, pursuing uh, postgraduate students. So we have an equal representation of women and men in, in those areas. Mm -hmm. However, after um, we get out of uh, postgraduate study, uh, we start losing the women in, in academic uh, positions. And especially if you start going up to higher levels of uh, leadership, um, the percentage of women that are going to be in those uh, positions is going to be smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And I think this is this is what we need to be talking about. Um, and the problem is not because for a long time there has been effort on trying to inspire girls to study or careers related to science. And we know that that's not the problem because we're getting a, like equal numbers of women and men uh, studying science careers. The problem is that uh, when you finish studying, um, the system is not um, welcoming for women to stay mm -hmm. in the system. Mm -hmm. And that is what it needs to change. So my, my experience, um, been from undergraduate has been excellent uh, from a postgraduate level has been also excellent because as I say like the system already we already have equal representation of men and women in those areas it's from now on that I'm gonna be seeing less and less and less women uh, mm -hmm. participating in science uh, mm -hmm. and I think uh, that's that's where we need to uh, be talking about how we're gonna do those changes uh, to support uh, the persistence of women in academia. But those changes they need to be done by those in positions of power that can change the system. Mm -hmm. It's it's not a work for women to pursue the the race of changing the system because they're not going to be able to do it. It's those that are in the positions in power that have the ability to change the system 
that we need to have as allies to start producing changes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very powerful message that, that you've got, that it really needs to be the, the, the entire system needs to change for, in order for women there are plenty of women who are students of science, but as you as you progress, that academia is losing many, many fine minds um, because the system is just not working for them. So I think that's a very powerful message. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and I think, like, most importantly is because there are not uh, ways of, in, in the systems, there is not a, uh, processes to support the permanence of women mm-hmm. and there's a lot of processes to um, support or reward uh, men for instance um, mm-hmm. well um, Adriana I think you've, you're working on some incredibly interesting things um, I think you've you've lived a very interesting life up to this point and I'm sure that life will reserve interesting things for you for you in the future and I wish you all the best of luck with it I think what you're doing is both in in the, what you're doing with women in science what you're doing with um uh, with the coral reefs are both incredibly important so I just want to acknowledge acknowledge that work and to say thank you for your time for being on the podcast ah thank you so much Cecilia and and I hope I really hope uh, uh, the work that we are doing at the moment actually uh, can progress and even though like to make everything has been more difficult because for instance we cannot get access to the reef uh, we are still doing our best to keep producing knowledge and uh, to to produce the knowledge that it's going to be needed for the managers uh, mm. but also I, I wish that um, other people out there that uh, are curious about similar topics of what I uh, dedicate my academic uh, research life, uh, feel inspired uh, and realize that um, even though like if you see, for instance, if you want to see the CV of uh, a researcher, you will feel like, oh, this person has is brilliant and has done so many things, but the path for that person to reach all those milestones has never been a straight line. And mm. there are so many ways of doing things, and there's not a correct or a way to do things. And also I want to stress out that uh, being a scientist or studying a scientific career doesn't mean that you need to stay in academia. There are so many other uh, avenues that you can take and still uh, all of them are producing knowledge that it's really important for the society. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Adriana. It's just been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, Cecilia. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Brave New Women. Certain podcast sites such as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser let you leave a rating and a review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more people will listen and the more these women's stories will be shared. So I'd really appreciate it if you could. Thanks for listening.